everyone, welcome to Ideology, a podcast where we seek to explore the ideas and belief systems that give rise to the contours of modern society. Our prayer is that you would be equipped to be a faithful follower of Jesus amid the complexity of our culture. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to this week's episode of Ideology. Drew Stedman here with McMurray. Before we get started today, one programming note. We're going to be taking a few weeks off for a summer break. And so this will be the last new episode for the next couple of weeks. So keep checking in. We will um, start back up again in four weeks. And we just encourage you to use this time to catch up on anything that you've missed. And we'll look forward to being back with you all soon. Well, today we're going to continue what we started last week, which was taking some time to look at some biblical text. And point of this is not to do an exhaustive study of the Bible as much as to bring everyone into how are different approaches or how are different ways that we can be learning from the scripture and approaching the word of God. And for us, a major win from these episodes would be if you're inspired to go to the word of God and dig a little deeper. And I'll just say before turning it over to Mick, who's going to lead us through the book of Job, I'll just say, for me, I can find times where I feel like I've plateaued in my study of Scripture, and it can be really helpful for me to learn from somebody. I've had this happen several times in my life where all of a sudden it's like I'm reading the Bible with fresh eyes and I'm getting so much more depth from it. And so in whatever way that this contributes to that, that's our hope. And ultimately, as we say all the time, we want to be formed by the the story of our faith more than the stories of our world, and that starts with us really being good students of Scripture. So with that in mind, um, last week we talked about Romans and a familiar New Testament text. Today, we're going to be looking at the book of Job, and Mick's going to be leading us through. And I'm really excited about this episode because I think this is probably one of those books that not nearly as many people are familiar with beyond a cursory reading, and most people probably haven't done an in-depth study. So Mick, take us into the book of Job. Great. And, And for a further disclaimer, I'm not an Old Testament scholar, and the idea behind this is to demonstrate or to you know model just taking a text, going a little bit deeper with the available resources, or with the resources that are available to all of us. You don't have to be an Old Testament scholar to get a deep, a deeper understanding of the scriptures, in in, in a meaningful way that's applicable and uh, in a way that's forming us. And so, so what I'm going to do today, I got from the Bible Project video on the Book of Job on the Read uh, Read Scripture series. Uh, I got from Blue Letter Bible, kind of poking around some of the different Bible dictionaries, some commentaries. And I got from uh, Gordon Fee's How to Read the Bible for, for All It's Worth, all resources we referenced uh, a couple episodes ago. And I, I kind of stuck to that intentionally to show the type of depth that you can get even from just these simple resources that are available to everybody. We're in such an information-rich age, and we would highly recommend you to access these resources to take your reading of Scripture beyond uh, a devotional level of reading because there's so much meat in a book like uh, the book of Job. So going back to a couple episodes ago when we were talking about, you know, how are some, you know, some fresh ways that we can utilize, what are some fresh ways we can utilize to approach the scriptures? I'm going to go off some of Drew's notes where he talked about, you know, looking at the context, the, the historical context, the literary context, looking at the author, the historical setting, uh, the main point, uh, looking at how 
the book is laid out thematically, its structure, and so on. So I'll just kind of go through each of these categories, and hopefully this is enriching for you, but it also lowers that barrier that you can have this kind of personal study in, in a very accessible format moving forward. So to start with, the author is anonymous. Uh, We don't know who wrote the book of Job. There's no clear historical setting. And most scholars think that that's actually intentional, that whoever wrote the book of Job intentionally left out their authorship, intentionally left out a clear historical setting, because it seems to focus us on the main message of the book of Job, the questions that are asked, and the clear lesson at the end of the book that we'll get to here in a moment. Uh, the literary category is it's part of the wisdom literature, along with books like Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. And that's a literary style that's unknown to most modern readers, uh, let alone modern Christians. And the point of wisdom literature is to empower the spiritual person to make godly decisions. Uh, that's most clear probably in the book of Proverbs. The book of Job is a little nuanced, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But one of the main points here is that Job is not a narrative form like First and Second Kings or Chronicles or Samuel or even Nehemiah or Ezra. It's not telling a linear story that's meant to communicate historical facts. It's not that Job wasn't a historical character. It's just that the author was not concerned with us knowing whether Job was or was not a historical character because it's in a different literary genre being wisdom literature. Wisdom literature was mostly very practical and found all over ancient culture, and it sought how to evaluate how best to make life's choices. Uh, One thought on wisdom here, and, and when I taught a logic class at a local private school, we talked a lot about wisdom, and sometimes people think that wisdom is a branch of knowledge. But what we see in the wisdom literature is that wisdom is different from knowledge and understanding. And and don't get caught up on the words that I'm using here because the Bible actually uses these words interchangeably. But generally speaking, wisdom, we would say, is the right application of knowledge and understanding. So if knowledge is just knowing facts about something and then understanding is knowing how those facts connect together, wisdom would then be knowing how to rightly apply based on God's standards, God's ways, that knowledge and that understanding. To give an example, uh, somebody like Oppenheimer had a lot of knowledge about physics, about uh, nuclear physics in particular. He had a lot of understanding, knowing how different branches of knowledge connected to one another, but it would be a completely different under, uh, a completely different conversation around did Oppenheimer have wisdom? And of course, I'm talking about the person who helped develop the, the nuclear bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Wisdom is a completely different conversation. Somebody can have a tremendous amount of knowledge and understanding and almost no wisdom. Conversely, somebody can have very little knowledge and understanding and have a tremendous amount of wisdom because the knowledge and understanding they do possess, they are rightly applying. And that's a a very relevant distinction in today's day and age because we don't have to have a plumb line necessarily for wisdom. We have a lot of knowledge even some understanding, but there is not a consensus in our culture today. And this is where this intersects very relevantly with our podcast for what is true wisdom? What does it mean to live rightly? That's even an anathema to suggest in today's day and age that there is, you know, again, objective truth, that there is a right way to live, that there is a wrong way to live, that there are right decisions and wrong decisions, good and bad objectively. 
One other thing to note about wisdom literature is that typically it's poetic. And so the literary style is not just wisdom literature, but it's ancient Near Eastern poetry, which is that much more nuanced and complex for modern readers. And we don't have to get into all of that today, but one thing that is worth noting is that the reason that typically writers at this time period would use poetry was because in an oral culture, poetry was easier to internalize and to remember than just pure narrative form. So if they wanted to communicate some kind of moral or communicate some kind of, again, wisdom you know, down through the ages, if I was a father passing on a wise saying to my son, putting it in some pithy saying, an acrostic, something like that, would be a more effective way to transmit that, that wisdom. And so that's what you see in the book of Job. It's a long poem, most of it. There is a short prologue and a short epilogue, but the majority of it is a series of poems. And so you have to take that into consideration as well. When it's translated from Hebrew to English, we lose the poetic form, but know that it was originally written in a poetic format. Some of the abuses, I think, that are common to modern readers looking at a book like Job, and again, we're just kind of setting up before we go through the different sections of Job, because all of this context is extremely important when it comes to understanding the main point of the text. But some of, some of the abuses that people commit when they approach wisdom literature, one is to read, read wisdom literature only in part, especially Proverbs, we're not talking about that today. People probably tend to make this mistake less with Job, but to just go in and take one verse or one section of verses or even one chapter, wisdom literature was, was meant to be read in its totality, in the broader context of the whole poem, if you will. And that is very true with Job. If you just kind of land on chapter 22 and try to pull truth from one or two or three verses without the broader context, there's a lot of mistruth. There's a lot of statements in the book of Job that are not true, and that's intentional, but you only understand that when you read it in context. So one abuse is to read wisdom literature only in part. Another is to misunderstand the terms or the categories. So if you don't understand, like in Proverbs, who the fool is, that word has a certain connotation, a certain semantic in our modern vernacular. And so you need to be careful when you read even translated words into English, understand in context the way that a fool, in this case, is an unbeliever, somebody who is unsubmitted to God, not necessarily somebody who is lacking, again, simple knowledge or understanding. And, and again, the third common abuse is to fail to follow the line of argument. And that ties back to the first one. If you only read wisdom literature in part and don't read it in its totality, you won't follow the line of argumentation. There actually is a very cohesive line of argumentation in the book of Job, as we'll see here in a moment. Yeah, wisdom literature is such a unique style. Something I heard um, not that long ago that I thought was interesting was there's some understanding among Bible scholars that Job, Ecclesiastes, and Proverbs are all meant to go together. If you read Proverbs, you, you find sayings like, the Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, the hand of the diligent makes rich, or sayings like that, which they are generally true. You know, if you're diligent, generally you'll not be in poverty, you know, th- things like that. But what do you do with suffering? What do you do with the hardship of this world? And that's where, if you read Ecclesiastes and Job, you, you get this understanding that bad things do happen to good people. And there are things in this world that are grossly unfair, that there really aren't simple answers for. And so I think even as we're talking about reading wisdom literature, the works, I think you actually have to read the totality of wisdom literature and scripture to get a full picture of 
I would look at it this way. Proverbs is the general way the world operates, but there's a lot of pain and suffering and brokenness in the world. And we don't just have Proverbs. We also have books like Job and Ecclesiastes, which really tap into the depths of human suffering. And we find that just as God is in the normal functioning of this world, God is also in the pain and challenges of this world. And and so that's something to consider uh, for all of us, especially coming off of a year where there's a lot of loss and grief that, you know, I've, I've found Proverbs is true, and I can I can lean on it. And the wisdom in that book is deeply applicable. And there are some mysteries in life where there's, you, you did all the right things. You did all the checklist in the book of Proverbs, and it's still not working out for you. You know, one of the, the beautiful things about Scripture is that we, we have additional resources to draw from that strengthen us in those moments as well. That's great, Drew. A couple other thoughts here on context, looking at the person of Job himself. He actually belongs to a branch of the Aramean race from Lower Mesopotamia. The only reason I'm pointing that out is because he was not a Jewish character. In fact, none of the characters in the book of Job are Israelites. That's interesting, and, and again, scholars tend to think that's that was intentional to show that this was universal wisdom. It wasn't just limited to the family of Abraham. Job is not bound by the ceremonial rituals. He does not have a system of sacrifices or a, or participate in a priesthood. The type of spirituality we see in the book of Job, it, it revolves around the home. It's a domestic spirituality in a highly patriarchal society. Job was a chieftain who was incredibly wealthy and of good repute in his context. And so this was kind of written to be this universal some might take issue with me calling it a parable because it may, may very well have been literal and historical. But again, it was written, at least the character chosen in the book here was intentionally not an Israelite to show that this was a universal form of spirituality. In the setting, he was from the land of Uz, which in Hebrew means counsel or words, which I thought was interesting. That comes from the Hitchcock Bible Dictionary. And it was basically an obscure land far from Israel, uh, Israel again, in the lower part of Mesopotamia. Uh, okay, so let's dive into the, the book itself and just kind of fly through the literary design because it's a very intentional and cohesive literary design. It starts with a short narrative prologue, like I mentioned, chapters one and two, and ends with a narrative epilogue. In the prologue, we're introduced to Job. He's an upright man, very wealthy. And then it very quickly shifts to this courtroom scene where you have this bizarre interaction where you know all the sons of God are assembled before God. And then Satan, who is that, that word in Hebrew means the accuser, uh, he comes before God and basically accuses Job and the character of God, saying that Job only worships you because you've blessed him. And then God permits Satan to inflict suffering on Job. And there should be an immediate pause that the reader should take. And the, the, the natural question that should arise is, why would God allow that? And then we assume that the book is, is going to immediately answer that question. And of course, this frames the entire point of the book of Job. It sets up these questions. Is God just? Does he order the universe according to strict principles of justice? And there's a deeper question that's actually implied right here in chapter one, but it's not stated actually at all throughout the book, even though God addresses it. And we'll come back to that here at the end. But those two questions, is God just? And does he order the universe according to that justice is what's at at issue right here off the bat and that God permits this righteous man to suffer in this way. Job has it tough. He loses his children. He loses his his wealth. His wife, you know, rebukes him for not cursing God. 
And then we have these three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, who arrive on the scene, and they represent the best of ancient Near Eastern thinking on God, on suffering, on the human condition, and we see each of them offer their wisdom throughout the rest of the book of Job. So that's kind of the setup. When we dive in to chapters 3 through 37, you have essentially these four parts where in the first section, in the second section, and the third section, Job is essentially interacting with each of these friends in turn. There are different arguments that are presented, and again, the focus of the debate is around God's justice in order to explain Job's suffering. So right off the bat, we find that they are working from a huge assumption of what God's justice ought to look like, and that's a key word there, ought. And we find that their notions, these friends' notions of justice are very karmic. That is that if you're good, then you'll be rewarded for it, and if you're evil, you will be punished. And Job's rebuttal is, I'm innocent, therefore my suffering cannot be the result of divine justice. And that absolutely incenses these three friends. That that flies in the face of everything that they know about God and the human condition and about suffering and about God's justice. And they've concocted this kind of clean syllogism in their minds that all suffering or divine punishment is the result of sin. Job is suffering, therefore Job must have sinned. And, you know, fast forward to the Gospels, you see this with the disciples, and Jesus rebukes them for it, the individuals whom the Tower of Siloam fell on, and, you know, did they sin? And Jesus said, no, they they weren't any worse sinners. So this is a theme that we see all throughout the Scriptures. What do we attribute suffering to? Where is God if God is good, if God is powerful? Where is God's justice when it comes to suffering. So Job happens to be right that his suffering is not the result of divine justice because we've already seen that in the prologue. So Job then concludes that God must not run the world according to his justice. All right, And you see these different accusations that surface throughout Job's questioning and Job's wrestling with his pain. When you fast forward to section 4, chapters 29 through 31, so this is after the three conversations with his friends where they're each laying out their arguments, we see Job kind of concluding that he can't reconcile his suffering with God's nature. He's been on these emotional roller coasters, and then he ends by asserting his innocence, and he demands answers. And then we have this fourth friend who comes on the scene, chapters 32 through 37, Elihu, who's also not an Israelite, but he has a Hebrew name, which is interesting. And his argument is that, yes, God is just, And yes, he acts accordingly, always. But Elihu adds a bit of depth to the argument by suggesting that the suffering may be a warning to prevent future sin because it's building character. So he adds a different dynamic that suffering may not always be attributed to God's divine punishment. Now, he's still not hitting the mark, uh, or at least he's not providing an answer that's sufficient for Job. And then he ends his monologue by rebuking Job, saying that God is too lofty to be accused. And so he's a half step closer to where we're going to end up here as God responds to Job. And so basically at the end of chapter 37, the wisdom of the ancients has been spent. The best that the world has to offer in terms of logical conclusions regarding suffering has been offered. And now we're going to pivot to God's response. 
So chapters 38 through 41 are the poetic speeches given by God in response to these arguments, and he's specifically directing them at Job in these four chapters. So in chapters 38 and 39, God responds to the accusation that he's unjust and or incompetent, and he's getting at Job and Job's friends' assumptions. And what he's, he's doing as he starts talking about, you know, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you when I, I told the sea it can come this far and no more? And and he goes into all these kind of bizarre explanations about how nature works and the, the calving of goats and the feeding habits of lions and wild donkeys and all this, this bizarre stuff that doesn't seem to connect with Job's questions. And what he's doing is he's actually getting at an underlying assumption that the real question at hand, at least in God's mind, is not about his justice, his character, is he just and does he act accordingly. What he's getting at is a deeper assumption Is mankind rightly situated to make an appraisal of God's justice? Do we possess the perspective requisite to be able to appraise God's character in that way and to make those accusations? And basically what God's saying here in this response is the universe is more vast and complex than you will ever understand. And I have my hand in every facet of it. My wisdom is broader, my thoughts are higher, my ways aren't your ways, that he would say uh, to Isaiah. Job, your world is limited to your own temporal horizon, and therefore you are not in a position to make an accusation. God even offers to Job for him to be judged for even just a day to see just how limited his own perspective is. In chapters 40 and 41, he starts talking about, God's talking about the behemoth and Leviathan, and people have you know, wondered, is that the hippopotamus, the crocodile? Is that some veiled reference to dinosaurs? But actually, those were common features in ancient poetry, and, and basically, they were symbols of disorder and danger. And basically, again, God affirming the point is that the world is is good and beautiful and complex, but it's also wild and dangerous and operates in ways that you won't understand from your limited perspective. So where are we left at the end of chapter 41 before the epilogue in chapter 42? Here are a few conclusions that you might draw from this wisdom literature. The question of why is there suffering? that we pose right there in chapter one. The response from God is that we live in an amazing world that's actually not designed to prevent suffering. So if you follow then the the logic or the line of argument, then the accusation, well, then God's unjust. And the response from God is actually, you're not in a position even to make that claim. And then the further I demand an explanation, what God essentially extends to Job is, Job, I invite you to not understand, but to trust. Trust my character and trust my wisdom, even when your circumstances don't seem to align. Actually, as I was prepping this material, I was thinking of a a situation just a few days ago where two of my sons, two of my four sons, had had an altercation. And what we do is we will, you know, we'll bring them aside. I'll pull them back one by one into my room in order to to discipline them, to talk it through. And so they don't really see each other being disciplined. We do that just to, you know, to protect their privacy, to honor them. And one of my sons in this particular occasion began to accuse me, I always get disciplined and my other brother never gets disciplined. You're unjust. 
And, and I was saying to him, no, 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 you don't understand. I, there are other circumstances. There are times when I pull him aside and we discipline him actually more than you in this particular case. But you don't see it. We, we have a perspective that you don't have. But he was set that I was unjust, that he was being treated unfairly. And so I just began to appeal to him, listen, you can't be involved in everybody's discipline. I'm just asking you to trust my character. You know that I'm for you. You know that mom and dad want you to thrive. So even this particular situation, this particular type of suffering, this pain, this has purpose to it. And I'm just asking for you to trust me. And so I made an appeal based on my greater wisdom and perspective that he trust my character in the midst of his own lack of understanding. And that's, that's an imperfect metaphor, but that's essentially what God is saying here to Job, that even in the midst of your pain, which is incredibly acute in this particular instance, even from that place of tremendous loss, Job, you don't have the perspective, you don't have the authority to question my justice, to question my aptitude. You just can't see like I see. You don't see the whole picture, but I'm asking you to trust my character. I'm asking you to trust my competency. So if I were to boil all this down to one sentence, what's the main point of the book of Job? Here's what I would offer to you, that when we search for reasons, reasons for pain in particular, we tend to oversimplify God. Instead, we have to realize there is complexity we'll never understand and that we're invited to trust God on the merits of his character and not our circumstances. To me, that's the main point of the book of Job, that when we search for reasons, we tend to oversimplify God. Instead, we're invited to trust him on the merits of his character and not on the merits of our circumstances. So then chapter 42, we have this short epilogue where Job repents. He has seen God. Actually, there's a great short video out by Bob Sorge where he talks about, you know, is there a God of justice in the book of Job? And he would put forth that absolutely that God's suffering was worth one of the most profound revelations any human has ever received on the nature of God. And, And if we have a diminished view of God's glory, of God's goodness, then we might not think that that's a worthwhile exchange, that God's suffering was worth that kind of revelation. But absolutely, we see a God of justice and mercy in the book of Job and how profound the revelation is that Job received of God. So Job repents. God approves of Job's wrestling, which is actually very comforting and should be very comforting for all of us. Job is never actually directly rebuked for his question asking. God responded to him very forcefully, but he's not rebuked for wrestling. And I think God is in the scriptures here is preserving this this dignity around wrestling through our pain and asking the hard questions. So if you're going through trauma, difficulty with COVID and finances and everything else that's been going on over this past year, an untimely loss, a chronic sickness. You're not rebuked here, at least in this wisdom literature, for asking the hard questions and going through the emotional roller coaster and even voicing the accusations at times because Job lands back in a place of submission and humility relative to God's nature. The friends are rebuked because they misrepresented God's nature. And then right at the end, Job is blessed again. And we have to take note that it's not a reward for his righteousness, but simply an act of God's generosity right there at the end of the story. So again, this is, I think, some of the pinnacle of wisdom literature, wisdom literature at its finest, because it underscores the difference between the world's wisdom, which which is very truncated, very limited, and tends to draw false conclusions because it's based on false assumptions. So the world's wisdom 
juxtaposed against God's wisdom, which is lofty and deep and complex and draws us back into this place of trust and dependence on the merits of God's nature. And then, you know, maybe last point here, if you think in the context of meta narrative, which we've talked a lot about, if you go back to the garden, this is nothing new, right? You have Adam and Eve there, the serpent, who's the craftiest of all the creatures, essentially accuses God's character, says God's holding out on you. If you'll eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll be wise. And essentially God has held out, held out on you. And, and of course, they take the bait, they eat the fruit, and their eyes are open. Now superimpose that same line of reason amid suffering, which Adam and Eve were not encountering, and you have the book of Job. Basically, it's this temptation to rely on our own wisdom, on our own logic, on our own conclusions based on faulty assumptions that's amplified when we're in the midst of pain and suffering and you have us relying on our own devices instead of trusting in the nature and the character of God. And, and this was likely written for a Hebrew audience, even though it was not utilizing Hebrew characters. And this was a message to the nation of Israel who repeatedly, over and over again, was trusting on the merits of their own wisdom, trusting on the merits of their own efforts instead of trusting in, uh, in the nature of God. And so this is right in the middle of the, the broader narrative of Scripture. It tells the lessons that color from Genesis 3 all the way through the end of the book of Revelation. And, and again, it intersects with our podcast, I think, most squarely with this notion we've been wrestling with when you, when you compare the Christian faith with secular humanism, where does authority reside? And within secular humanism, it's in the self. And so what do we do with pain and suffering? Well, if there is a God, then he is to be accused. But if the Christian scriptures are true, if there's a locus of authority that's outside of the self, if there is a God who orders and creates everything, then who are we, the one who is molded, to say back to the molder, why have you made me thus? Why are my circumstances thus? Rather, leaning on and trusting in the character that he has revealed through the scriptures, through the person of Jesus, through creation, by the Holy Spirit, through the church, throughout history, and we shift the authority away from the self in a posture of humility and, and trust this being who has objective truth that's outside of the self, even if I don't fully understand it, especially in light of my circumstances. That's such a powerful message. I just hearing you go through it and just thinking what a relevant topic for us. And my hope is for all of us, you know, what I, what I love about that overview was it's an accessible thing for anybody using, you know, a cost of a book that's about $15 or $9.99 if you want to get it on Kindle and a bunch of free online resources. So there's no seminary degree required. There's no language knowledge you need to have, just some tools that we've already given you. And even just that one sentence description of the message of the book, that's a great thought exercise for any Bible book you're studying is at the end of your study, try it. Can you give a one-sentence message for what this book was trying to say? Tap into some of those resources. Even better yet, start your study by doing some research and trying to come up with a one-sentence explanation and then see and watch how the book unfolds toward that end. And it just unlocks and opens up. And we saw that, you know, just with your explanation, Mick. You start to see aspects of the book just start to come alive to you in new ways. So we pray that this inspired you to, to dive into the Word of God, and whether that's a familiar text like Romans or an unfamiliar text like Job or whatever else it might be, I think we start to discover as we go to the Word of God, we start to find truth that's deeply relevant for our world today. When will we really take the time to let the story of Scripture shape us?
Well, we'll see you back here. Just as a reminder, it's going to be four weeks from now when we start our new season of new episodes. And so it'll come back, but we're going to take a bit of a summer break. So please do use these next few weeks to get caught up on whatever you've missed. As always, um, send in emails with questions, topics, stuff you'd like for us to cover. And we're, we're starting to map out kind of what that next round of, of topics. So now's a great time if you want to reach out. Please leave a review and we'll look forward to seeing you guys back here in a couple of weeks for the next episode of Ideology. Music.